Welcome to Dead and Gone in Wyoming, a monthly podcast telling the stories of this remarkable state's most enduring murders and disappearances. As per our usual disclaimer, this podcast contains subject matter relating to disturbing and tragic events and is not suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. We're brought to you again this month by the Hampton Inn & Suites in Riverton, Wyoming. Please take a moment sometime to thank them for their advertising on the show. They are a big part of what makes it possible every month. As are our Patreon supporters, Carol, Christopher, Kate, Kelsey, and Kim. Thank you all. Their financial support also gets them early access to every show. And we'd be honored to have you support the podcast as well, if that's possible. And if not, that's perfectly fine, too. We just love to have everyone out there listening. And I want to take a special moment right now to thank each and every one of you for subscribing and for returning each month to listen to the podcast. I've been overwhelmed by your responses to our stories and your reactions to them, your encouragement and your support in our efforts to tell these stories every month. And I was thinking of you all as I wrote and produced this month's episode, Uh, especially those of you who have reached out, emailed, or interacted on social media about the show, because since we started the podcast at the end of last summer, we've been able to incorporate, for want of a better word, requests into our show. The Rollins Rodeo murders, the David Lovely disappearance, for example, were both cases brought to my attention by you guys. But from the beginning, there has been one case above all that has been asked for the most, and that is the case that we are bringing to you this month. The highest compliment that I receive as a storyteller is when I'm asked to hear a story from someone who already knows the ending to it. Many of you already know about the Vihar bombings, But I hope you enjoy today's episode and today's retelling nonetheless. I might even go so far as to venture to say hopefully you may learn a thing or two from our retelling of it. And for those of you who are not familiar with the story that you're about to hear, as as I wasn't until a little over a month ago, I'll ask you to sit back and lose yourself in this bizarre riddle from 1970s Wyoming. We'll only be telling you this one case this month because it's one of the most complicated criminal cases in the history of Wyoming, and it needs some time to tell. And the ending to this one is as wild and woolly as they come. The four of them returned to the single-story brick home in Evanston at about 1 a.m. 67-year-old Vincent Vihar, a God-fearing and well-liked local attorney, along with his wife Beverly, and the couple's two adult sons, 18-year-old John and 27-year-old Tony, were returning from a week-long trip to Laramie, where 18-year-old John had played in the Shrine football game. The Shrine Bowl had been around for a couple of years at that point. It's still the state's premier high school showcase. These days, it's sort of a postseason showcase, but at that time in 1977, it was a preseason all-star game for the upcoming year's high school seniors to showcase their skills on the gridiron to potential scouts especially today, but even back then, and just gear up for their final prep season. It's now held in the middle of the summer, but back then, as today, in 1977, the Shrine Game featured a week's worth of activities. At that point, it was in Laramie, and the entire Vihar family had traveled together in support of John's participation in those events before the Evanston standout returned to school for his senior year. The Vihar home was modest, very modest, you might say, and nondescript. 
Some overgrown bushes and shrubs dotted a short walkway to seven steps leading up to the screened front door. Two small curtained windows on either side were the only view of the residential street from the inside of the home. The four of them were tired from their journey. They weren't supposed to be home until later that day on Sunday, but they decided to press through and arrive late that night. There wasn't much room in the small home for all four of them, but it would just be for the one night. The older son, Tony, who is also a lawyer in Kimmerer, Wyoming, would be on his way when he woke up in the morning. Everyone retired for the night shortly after arriving home at about 1 o'clock in the morning. All four were in bed by 1.30, and probably all four were fast asleep by 2 a.m. And 12th Street in Evanston, Wyoming, was dead quiet at 3.30 a.m. that morning, except for the man pulling up directly outside in front of the home. He put his car in park, but left the motor running. Because once he lit the fuse, every second would count. Being parked on the street directly in front of the home wasn't ideal, and neither was leaving the car's motor on, but that couldn't be helped. The man exited the car, careful to shut the driver's side door but not to slam it, and proceeded to the trunk of the vehicle. This was the tricky part, he knew. If something was going to go wrong, if he was going to get caught, it would be right then. The man popped the trunk to reveal his homemade bomb. The explosive device was abrasive and crude, consisting of little more than 30 sticks of dynamite basically taped together. And it was rather large, big enough where he'd need to carry it with both hands. The man had decided that the open trunk of his car in the pitch dark might not be seen for a couple of minutes, but the sound of his trunk slamming shut could draw a curious, insomniatic glance at the window of neighboring homes. That he couldn't afford. He couldn't afford to be seen. At least not yet. Then again, while his open trunk would be silent to the street for the few minutes he would need to carry out his plan, the open trunk would almost certainly draw to a stop any police car that might happen to pass through the area on patrol, at which point the officer would exit his vehicle, have a look around with a flashlight, and almost certainly find him crouched behind a bush on the lawyer's property alongside his large homemade bomb. Either way, for the next few minutes, he was going to be exposed, and that's all there was to it. The man grabbed his deadly creation from the trunk with both hands. Leaving his car's trunk popped open, he proceeded, silently as he could, along the side of the home to the lawyer's backyard. If he'd been seen at this point, there was still time to retreat. So there, in the Vihar's small backyard, the man stopped and squatted and looked around hard and carefully at all the other homes on the streets and all the other windows he could see. And then back to the streets. For the next two or three minutes, the man was still, surveying who might have seen him, who might be watching him now. And then, after a few moments, satisfied he'd evaded detection by anybody, he extracted a lighter from his pants pocket. The bomb with 30 sticks of dynamite was powerful enough almost certainly to level the building from where it sat in the backyard, but here, a stroke of luck. The basement window had moved inward as the man had lightly pressed on it, and the window was large enough to gain entry for the device. The man positioned his bomb aside the window, opened the window with his left hand, and while lighting the fuse with his right, pushed the bomb inside, 
ran. Sprinting back around the home to the rear of the vehicle, the man slammed down the trunk, nearly threw himself into the driver's seat, and peeled off into the night. He was making a lot of noise now. Enough noise to have woken up even the soundest sleeper on the block, but the noise didn't matter anymore. And the 60-second fuse on the bomb burned down. Dead and Gone in Wyoming is made possible by the Hampton Inn and Suites in Riverton, Wyoming. Riverton is a gateway to adventure located right in the middle of the cowboy state. I can't wait to return because it's a hub for experiencing the best that the state has to offer. It's a jumping off spot for attractions like Yellowstone and the Tetons, world-class skiing, mountain recreation year-round, Casino gaming, as well as cultural and historical sites on and around the Wind River Reservation. Riverton has easy access to the best of Wyoming, and when you're visiting, you'll want to stay at the best. The Hampton Inn & Suites is conveniently located right there in Riverton. They serve a free hot breakfast as well. Make plans to stay at the Hampton Inn & Suites in Riverton, Wyoming, and feel the Hamptonality. Vincent Vihar had been practicing law in Wyoming for more than 30 years. As a Uinta County prosecutor, he caught his first murder case in 1947 with the shooting death of three men inside a railroad boxcar. In 1949, he married Beverly, a farmer's daughter, and in 1952, the couple moved to inside Evanston. Vihar's law career in the small town took off. Soon, he'd been elected as a commissioner to the Wyoming State Bar Association, and Vihar's philanthropic and volunteer plate was pretty full as well. He served as the regional director for the American Red Cross. By the 60s, having served as Uintas County Attorney for nearly 20 years, Vihar had moved on into semi-retirement. His focuses shifted to the slightly more political. While he still practiced law on a selective basis locally in Uinta County, in 1962, Vihar was appointed to the Governor's Small Business Advisory Council. He also began actively endorsing judicial candidates in elections. The events that led to Vincent Vihar's death and the death of his wife and son in 1977 began with a hole in the ground in 1974. Now, Vincent Vihar was a big-time, big-crime lawyer. He was not practicing, say, tax law. He wasn't handling divorce cases. He and his office personally prosecuted every murder case in Uinta County and every other major crime case there for nearly 20 years as he was the county attorney. Certainly, he was aware of threats that were made against him by people that he convicted, like any prosecutor. He'd certainly made some people upset over the years. But this also wouldn't have been news to him. And he would have been used to that kind of attention and as used to living under that sort of constant pressure as one can be used to. In 1974, in Bridger Valley, a man named Joe Hopkinson was doing some construction on his property. In the process, he filled in the water supply of a neighboring family, the Rowitzes. The Rowitz family sued Joe Hopkinson and won a judgment in the case, which is where Joe's son, Mark Hopkinson, enters the story. Mark Hopkinson was born in Fort Bridger, Wyoming, on October 8, 1949. He was one of four siblings from a Mormon family that operated a small ranch near Evanston. Some background information on Hopkinson was done very well by a blogger with the moniker Suzuki Nathy. 
His blog, which is called Suzuki's Thoughts, Dissertations from the Desk of Suzuki Nafi, is amazing in its detail and thoroughness. And I've actually spoken with Suzuki on the phone about a different case. I've always been impressed with his research in detail. And this is how Suzuki described Mark Hopkinson in a 2018 post. From an early age, Mark Hopkinson showed himself to be a very intelligent person, but also extremely cunning and manipulative. Although his father was often abusive, Hopkinson himself rarely bore the brunt of the abuse. He was always able to charm his way out of a beating. Additionally, Hopkinson was able to manipulate his parents and grandparents into overlooking practically anything he did, whether it be stealing, bullying, or cheating on a test. In Mark Hopkinson's mind, he was above the rules. He didn't have to abide by restrictions. Rules were beneath him, he thought, and he deserved to get everything that he wanted. In high school, Mark Hopkinson became a very popular athlete. He was handsome, tall, smart, well-built, and most of all, incredibly charming. Hopkinson was the star of the high school, a role model for boys, and the subject of attention and affection from the girls. Teachers always gave him special treatment and adored him. Hopkinson was always polite, always friendly, always easygoing, and always talkative and entertaining. But Hopkinson also had a dark side. Beneath the superficial charm Hopkinson displayed to others, there lurked an evil, sadistic, manipulative, self-serving man who possessed a huge ego, a disregard for the well-being of others, and a penchant for violence. Hopkinson was often a troublemaker in school, and he used his charming personality and smooth talk to avoid any disciplinary punishment. Hopkinson often cheated in his athletic games or convinced his fellow players to cheat. He didn't care about the rules of the game he was playing, nor did he care about the ethical issues of playing dishonestly. All that mattered to him was winning. Hopkinson was a very poor sport, losing his temper whenever he lost a game. Most frightening, however, was Hopkinson's penchant for sexual sadism and animal cruelty, traits very common among psychopaths. If nothing else, Mark Hopkinson was a bona fide psychopath, a charming, pathological liar who was manipulative and narcissistic to an extreme level, and a man who derived pleasure from inflicting pain on others and manipulating people to do what he wanted. As a young man, Hopkinson allegedly had a habit of using his charming personality and his good looks to lure unsuspecting young teenage girls to his trailer park. There, he would drug them, strip them naked, sexually abuse them, take pornographic pictures of them, and sell the photos to potential buyers, or use the photos as blackmail against the girls. Hopkinson also had a love of firearms and hunting. While it was not unusual for boys in rural Wyoming to own a gun, Mark Hopkinson was not content with simply shooting rocks and beer cans. Instead, he shot small, helpless animals like jackrabbits, prairie dogs, and chipmunks. On one occasion, Hopkinson shot and killed a deer that was walking on the side of the road. He didn't kill it for food or even for its antlers. He shot the animal just for the fun of it and left the body lying in the open to rot away. It wasn't long before Hopkinson also began committing petty crimes. At the age of 17, Hopkinson burglarized several of his neighbor's houses, including those of his best friends, and stole a large amount of guns and truck tires. When he was arrested for that crime, Hopkinson used his charm and manipulation to talk his way out of a harsh sentence. He promised he wouldn't do it again. He told the judge it was just a silly teenage prank. His charming personality and faux apology fooled the judge, and Hopkinson was released without going to prison. He even managed to win back the trust of his neighbors and friends, who openly welcomed him back into the same homes he had previously robbed. 
In his senior year of high school, Hopkinson became the star of Bridger Valley's football team, earning an athletic scholarship to the University of Arizona. Abruptly, Hopkinson dropped out of the university in the early 70s and later surfaced in New Hampshire in 1972, where he was arrested for possession of marijuana with intent to distribute. He pleaded guilty to those charges and was sentenced to five years in prison on April 19, 1973. As usual, Hopkinson eventually charmed his way into having his sentence commuted to just three years. After serving that sentence, Hopkinson was released on parole in 1975 and moved back to Bridger Valley, Wyoming with his new wife, Judy. No one knew it yet, but the stage had already been set for Mark Hopkinson to carry out the worst crime spree in modern Wyoming history. Those are the words of Suzuki Nathy. And again, my thanks to Suzuki for his amazingly thorough work. You can see his blog at suzukisthoughts.blogspot.com. It really is impressive work in a variety of different cases. So following the Rowitz family successfully winning that judgment against Mark Hopkinson's father over the water dispute, the son, Mark, paid the Rowitz family a little visit. In 1976, Mark Hopkinson approached the Rowitz family, and at first he seemed very polite and conciliatory. He seemed to express a genuine interest in coming to some sort of agreement between the two families about the water situation. Frank Rowitz, he heard what Mark Hopkinson had to say, but ultimately he decided he was not going to comply with the requests of Mark and his family. After all, Rowitz had the courts on his side. He didn't have to listen to anyone. And this is where the first sign of the real Mark Hopkinson was revealed to Frank Rowitz, but it wouldn't be the last. Mark became enraged, began yelling and frantically pacing. That's as far as things would go that day. But the peace between the two neighboring families would not be kept for long. In May 1976, Frank Rowitz and his daughter were eating lunch outside when they noticed that Mark Hopkinson's vehicle was circling the property repeatedly. Rowitz began to approach. Mark stopped his car and got out. And the two began yelling. Mark wanted Rowitz's trailer moved, feeling it had invaded the Hopkinson property. Frank Rowitz was having none of it, and the, and the confrontation escalated. The last thing Frank Rowitz said before being knocked unconscious was, Come and get me. At about that moment, Mark's father, Joe, snuck up from behind on Rowitz and hit him over the head with a hammer. The beating continued after Frank had fallen, and Frank's daughter, who was 21 and pregnant, attempted to come to her helpless father's aid. She succeeded in at least drawing Mark Hopkinson's rage away from her father, but now the focus of his derangement was on her, and she paid a price for it. Mark began beating the pregnant woman about her face, back, and arms, and punched her twice in the stomach. Charges were never filed. In relation to that altercation, Jim Phillips, the county attorney who'd come into office after Vincent Vihard stepped down, was friendly with the Hopkinson family. And because charges weren't filed after that incident, the Hopkinson family became emboldened. Yes, Frank Rowitz had the court order in his favor in the land dispute, but he'd come to realize it was practically worthless if Mark and Joe Hopkinson could just retaliate against them violently with impunity. Without many other options, Frank Rowitz called Vincent Vihar for help. Vincent Vihar didn't have to take the case that would eventually end his life, but he wanted to. He was not a fearful man, and he was well aware of the Hopkinsons. As county attorney, Vincent Vihar had prosecuted both Joe and Mark Hopkinson, 
and Vihar was genuinely concerned for everyone in the Rowitz family. He felt morally compelled to take on the Rowitzes as a client. Vihar took the Rowitzes' legal complaint to the Fort Bridger Water Board, which ruled that Mark Hopkinson could purchase the water area from Rowitz, but that it would cost him three times the normal cost to do so. The ruling was bittersweet for the Hopkinson family. They'd won, in a manner of speaking, but their victory would cost them more than Mark Hopkinson and the rest of the family felt it should. Eventually, Mark Hopkinson simply refused to pay the extra cost. The county responded by threatening to take Hopkinson to court if he didn't pay. And that's when the death threats began. County board members were stalked. They would return home at the end of the day to find their windows shot out. Members of the Rowitz family received threatening notes on their doorstep. The stalking and the threats were the last straw. In January 1977, members of the county board, along with the Rowitz family, sued Mark Hopkinson for the $12,000 in fees he already owed, but also an additional $50,000 in damages for Mark's harassment over the recent months. There's no way of knowing if anyone but Mark Hopkinson himself had any idea, then, how far he would go to make sure he was never compelled to pay one dollar asked for in that lawsuit. The first thing Hopkinson did is approach an employee of his, a man named Jeff Green, as well as two of Green's friends, about the idea of carrying out some kind of action against Vincent Vihar. The idea was simple. If Vihar went away, so too would the lawsuit. Jeff Green himself was relatively harmless, 21 years old, a social outcast. He more wanted to please Mark Hopkinson than anything else, but Green had some legitimately bad friends. Shortly before, a 15-year-old girl named Kelly Wykuski had been kidnapped, raped, murdered, and her body sexually mutilated, and there were a lot of rumors that two of Green's friends were involved. This is how the plot began. The plan was to plant a dynamite bomb in the basement of the Vihar home in the middle of the night, killing the entire family in a large explosion as they slept. The group was hopeful that the explosion would be blamed on a gas line accident and that police would be sidetracked for months before they could ever tie the crime to Mark Hopkinson. And while police were distracted, and with Vihar, the lawsuit attorney, now dead, the water board's case against him would fail, and he could use his connections in the government to cover his tracks after the fact. In return for help in constructing the dynamite bomb, Hopkinson promised to pay all three accomplices, two men named Heisel and Hickey, as well as Green, $2,000 each. Aware that Heisel and Hickey were in fact involved in the death of Kelly Wakuski, Mark Hopkinson also promised them to help cover up their involvement in the murder of the 15-year-old girl, whose body at that point still had not been found. Because Mike Hickey was an experienced killer, he was the one chosen by Hopkinson to actually plant the bomb at the Vihar home. On August 1, 1977, Mark Hopkinson received word that he was to be deposed by Vincent Vihar in court in eight days. Five days after that, August 6, Mark Hopkinson met Mike Hickey at a local bar and told him it was time. Mike Hickey got in his car and drove to the Vihar house that same night. None of the conspirators apparently knew that nobody was supposed to be in the Vihar home that night. Remember, they'd gone for the entire week to Laramie for their son's week of football. And had Vincent Vihar and his wife and two sons kept their original plans to take their time on their way home and not arrive until later on Sunday, 
Nobody would have been inside the house when Mike Hickey crept into their backyard in the middle of the night and planted 30 sticks of dynamite in the basement. The explosion was first thought to be an earthquake or a gas line accident. Whatever it was, it was big. It rocked the small town of Evanston and sent people scrambling into the street to see what had happened. Police and fire departments responded within minutes. What they found was an entire home demolished. Nothing was left of the structure but debris, which had also been sent flying for as far as 400 yards from the home. Some of the neighbors had been injured when exploded wood and metal had flown through their bedroom windows. Certainly nobody had survived. And indeed, Vincent and his wife Beverly, and his son, 18-year-old John, who had just played his final football game, all three were killed. But incredibly, as the crews began excavating the destruction, they heard cries for help. I'm here! I'm here! Coming from the rubble. The Vihar's oldest son, Tony, had survived. So, too, had the couple's dog and cat. But three had been killed and the investigation into Evanston's most famous murders began. First things first, round-the-clock surveillance of the scene was set up by police, as evidence was collected from the scene and the surrounding homes, and almost immediately police suspected the blast was not the result of a gas leak. And that fact was confirmed by the utility company within a few days. Police, though, were initially short suspects. They weren't even sure if this was a bombing, who the target was. Certainly, Vincent Vihar, having been county attorney, was a likely choice, but his oldest son, Tony, had also practiced law for a few years in Kimmerer, Wyoming. Maybe he had made some enemies. And the bombing itself sparked rumors of the mob and organized crime. The first break in the case came after the rubble of the explosion was cleared and police found a crater in the basement of the home where the bomb had gone off. There had been some speculation that the device had been set off using a phone call to the home, but the crater in the basement confirmed the bomb's location, and the floor plans for the home led police to conclude that the bomb must have been dropped in through the window. Weeks and months went by, though, and the case seemed to go cold. The end of 1977 arrived, and eventually several months, and six months, had passed since the bombing with no movement in the case, at least not publicly. But police seemed confident, the local sheriff even going so far as to predict that the case was going to be solved. But as the months ticked by, there were no arrests and there were no leads until that summer. In midsummer 1978, Jeff Green, who'd been approached initially by Mark Hopkinson about the Vihar plot, Jeff Green was on the witness stand for an entirely unrelated case, the murder trial of Jamie Heisel who by this time had been charged in the death of 15-year-old Kelly Wykuski. And like a scene out of a movie, out of nowhere in open court, Jeff Green grew a conscience and started talking about the Vihar bombing. Green came clean right there on the stand. He told the whole story about how his former boss had hired him to be a part of the plot, that Hickey had provided Hopkinson with a dynamite that was going to be used to make the bomb, he even revealed that this wasn't the first bomb plot hatched by Mark Hopkinson, but the second. Green told the court he'd been sent by Mark Hopkinson to Arizona with two sticks of dynamite to collect a $10,000 debt that Mark Hopkinson thought was owed to him by someone there. But Green got pulled over in Utah and was arrested for transporting explosive devices, so he never made it to Arizona. And according to Green, the Vihar bombing wasn't even the first time Mark Hopkinson had tried to kill Vincent Vihar. Some months before, Green said, 
Mark Hopkinson had hired a man to wait outside Vihar's office and shoot him as he walked out. But when Vincent Vihar did come out of the building, he was walking and talking with someone else, and the sniper got cold feet. After Green's testimony in court, the conspiracy fell apart. Police found Mike Hickey in California and asked him about his involvement in all of these matters. At the time, he denied any connection whatsoever, but he promised to return to Wyoming shortly. And upon his arrival back in the state, he was charged with the Waikusi murder. In order to save Hickey, Mark Hopkinson came up with a plan whereby Hickey, Green, and him would all tell stories implicating Heisel. Eventually, this did lead to the dropping of murder charges against Hickey and the indictment of Heisel for the Wakusi murder. Nonetheless, Hickey did end up in prison. He went to prison on burglary charges in the spring of 1978. Then, Mark Hopkinson and Hickey were tried on federal charges coming out of Jeff Green's attempt to plant the car bomb in Arizona, and as a result of that trial, Mark Hopkinson, but not Hickey, was convicted, sentenced, and confined to a federal prison in Lompoc, California. And by then, Mark Hopkinson had told several people that Jeff Green was a dead man. While he was locked up at Lompoc, Mark Hopkinson had unlimited access to the telephone, and he used it to call a former roommate, a man named Hap Russell, and arranged to have him visit. And according to prosecutors who later tried this case, these conversations were the precursor for the murder plot to kill Jeff Green. Hap Russell soon after contacted a man named John Suistata. During their meetings, several thousand dollars changed hands. And the two were able to determine the location of Jeff Green, who had gone to Iowa to attend the funeral of his grandmother in mid-May 1978. Jeff Green and his mother returned the night of May 17th, and on the morning of May 18th, Jeff Green disappeared in the company of two men. Jeff Green's body was found two days before the opening of the grand jury investigation into the Vihar bombing. Mark Hopkinson was then indicted for, among other crimes, the murders of the Vihars, as well as Jeff Green, and brought to trial on September 3, 1979. And after the jury returned their finding of guilty on all six charges, they were asked to deliberate as to whether the death penalty should be imposed for the four murder convictions. The jury returned a recommendation of life imprisonment for the Vihar counts, but death for the murder of Jeff Green. So Mark Hopkinson was sentenced to death for the murder of Jeff Green. Mark Hopkinson was executed by lethal injection at the Wyoming State Penitentiary in Rollins on January 22, 1992. He maintained his innocence until death. And a few people, not many, but some in Wyoming, still question his involvement in the Vihar bombing. Of the three conspirators, Mike Hickey was the bomber at the Vihar house. Mike Hickey also later confessed to killing 15-year-old Kelly Wykuski. But other people, including Mark Hopkinson, had already been sentenced to these crimes. As of last word in 2011, Mike Hickey, the Vihar bomber and the murderer of Kelly Wykuski, was living a quiet life, a free man, in Lone Tree, Wyoming. Thank you for listening to this month's episode of Dead and Gone in Wyoming. As detailed as we were able to get here in this half hour or so, in some ways we barely scratched the surface of Mark Hopkinson's criminal ring and all the different connections with the Vihar murders. And there are several good books on the topic out there. Uh, attorney Jerry Spence has a 
probably slanted but insightful take in his book, Gunning for Justice. And I haven't read this one, but it looks good. Legacy of Fear, Mark Hopkinson and the Bridger Valley Murders. As you heard, this is a story straight out of a, a movie script, and there's a lot more to be told about it if you want to read into and look into it further. But unfortunately, that's all the time that we have for this month. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks to our Patreon supporters for going the extra mile as well. One final thanks to Hampton Inn and Suites in Riverton, Wyoming, for their support of the show as well. For everyone at 10cast and county10.com, I'm Scott Fuller, already looking forward to bringing you the next episode of Dead and Gone in Wyoming. Hey there, thanks for listening to Dead and Gone in Wyoming. Jared Anderson here from the Porter's 10Cast Studios in Riverton, Wyoming, made possible by Porter's Supply Company. By the way, if you're interested in more Wyoming-based podcasts, we'd love it if you'd check out some of the other 10Cast Network shows. Wyoming counselor Lance Goaty discusses mental health issues and how to have more positivity in your life on the Positively Mental podcast. Hunting legend and entrepreneur David Merrill and expert fisherman Patrick Edwards talk all things hunting, fishing, and outdoors on the Radcast Outdoors podcast. Central Wyoming history is discussed in depth on Rediscover the Winds, a Wyoming history podcast. And for daily conversations, news updates, and reports from the field, check out the County 10 podcast. All of those shows and more can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever your favorite podcast app is, pretty much. You can ask to hear them on your smart speaker. Follow 10cast.county10.com or like 10cast on Facebook. And as always, for more Wyoming news, visit county10.com.